Uh, we've got five verses uh, to have a look at today, uh, two through to six. Uh, five, for me, genuinely challenging verses. And the challenge today really is predominantly at myself. Now, Paul in Colossians has spent uh, most of chapter three dealing with a lot of the ethical issues that um, the new Christians in Colossae in this church are going to be facing. He's looking at things like how the old nature of life before Christ can be what is different to, to living with a new nature, a God-given nature, one empowered through the Spirit. We've been looking, and last week in particular with Andy, we were looking at how a godly marriage can operate, how a godly family can operate, how a godly workplace can operate. And we come towards the end of this uh, book, and this section is easily named itself Prayer and Proclamation. Prayer and Proclamation. Words that you'll see in the, in the passage already. Now, there's a lot of similarities in the structure of the book of Colossians and the, the book of Ephesians. And the, the passage we were looking at last week um, is drawn out in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. So, there's a lot of crossovers. And then both books go on uh, and look at the very, very, very similar material. So the topic that we're looking at today is also brought out in Ephesians 6, verses 18 to 20, and we're going to dip into Ephesians a little bit for some of the ideas, and a few of the verses will come up at various points. So Paul is now turning from matters of the Christian family, the household, really to matters more of the wider church, issues which are relevant to all Christians. And so in Colossians 4, uh, verses 2 to 6, we read these words. Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, last week, we finished off looking at the relationship between the slaves and their owners. And verse 1 of this chapter is still in that. So you could possibly see a link, a direct link, with the verses that we're reading straight in with the the slave owners and the slaves themselves. It could be a connection. We're going to widen out from that. But there's probably a lesson that we can learn immediately if we think about these, or the the initial verses, in the context of the slave owners uh, and the slaves that work for them. And if we extrapolate out to bosses and workers just um, in our own lives, wouldn't it be a different workplace if we prayed for our bosses, if we prayed for the people that we work with? Wouldn't that change things in our workplace? And I think there's an essence of of what Paul is saying, and he's linking this into the slave owners and their slaves. It's hard to hold a grudge. It's hard to have ill feelings. It's hard to deal with somebody harshly, while at the same time, in the background, you're praying for them. It's difficult. I've heard people say that. I've experienced that in my own life. When you're praying for somebody, it's hard to have ill feelings towards them. It's hard to hold a grudge. And it would change our workplaces. It would make them better. It would make them more godly. If, as bosses, we prayed for and maybe even with our colleagues. If, as colleagues, we prayed for and with each other. It might just clear up some of the animosity that you quite often and inevitably find in the workplace. 
So there's a challenge there, but we are going to take these verses and widen them a little bit further to the general church family and just the wider spiritual family. Now I'm going to make a confession, and I don't think it's going to be the first time you'll have heard this. I might have even said this from up here. I find prayer hard work. I find it hard work. Quote. Um, I don't know why that is. I don't, I don't know if it's because my pride thinks that I should be able to fix all of my problems myself. And I know that's not exactly what prayer is about. It's just about presenting my problems to God. I know that. But possibly there's an aspect of that in me. Maybe it's I just don't have the faith to really expect to see it working. To really expect to see immediate answers to prayers, and etc. I don't know what it is. I find prayer, regular prayer, hard work. And I think Paul maybe even expected this. He says devote uh, and in some translations it will say continue now devote I'm not really a Greek scholar that comes as a surprise I'm sure um, I'm not a Greek scholar but this Greek word devote is in the let me just find this it is in the present active imperative tense right there you are um, what that means is it's for now and it's to be ongoing and it's not negotiable It's a commandment. Devote yourself, continue to pray. Prayer is something that is going to take perseverance, it's going to take determination, but it's actually something that we are told to do individually, as a church. So why is it hard? I don't know. Do I believe that prayer works? Yes, I do. Wholeheartedly. Do I believe um, that that prayer will make a difference in the world? Yeah, I do. Do I believe that God hears and answers prayers? Yes, I do. Sometimes it's not the the answer that we want, but it is always the answer that we need. Do I believe that? Absolutely. Do I believe that regular um, praying makes a difference in our own personal lives, in our relationship with God? Absolutely. And I think a lot of the time, prayer is as much about the relationship that we have with God as opposed to presenting our needs and, and asking for solutions and things like that. For me, because I don't actually understand prayer, and there's a lot of questions about prayer that I don't have answers to. I really don't. I, I, and you could ask me a whole bunch of questions, and I'll say, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that works. But for me, I believe that prayer, a lot of it, is about my relationship with God. He wants to hear my voice. He wants me to bring my problems to him. He wants me to have this constant communion with him. Prayer is important. Do I believe that it's hard work and essential? Yes, I do. And so, can I challenge you? If you are a regular prayer, excellent. If you're praying three times a day. If you have a good habit, a good structure of your prayer life, excellent. Continue doing that. If you struggle like I do with regular prayer, can I just challenge you to redouble your efforts? Can I challenge you to, to make a decision that tonight you're going to pray? Maybe that's as a couple, maybe that's as a family, maybe that's just you yourself sitting down, finding time, making 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it is. Can I just challenge you to redouble your efforts to pray? Like a husband was called to devote himself to his wife and to sacrifice for his wife, like an athlete has to devote himself and give up something so that he can be the best athlete that he can be, 
So we are called to devote ourselves to prayer. But at the same time, we're asked to be watchful and thankful when we pray. Now, when Jesus took his disciples to Gethsemane, um, before he was tried, uh, and read about it in, in Matthew 26, he said, stand here and watch with me. And when he returned, he found them sleeping and said, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, I'm not one for judging disciples. I think a lot of the time we jump on the disciples very quickly for decisions that are made, for mistakes that they make. I don't know what I would be like if I was in the disciples' shoes 2,000 years ago. I'm not one for jumping on them. But this is the opposite of watchfulness. Jesus says to them, couldn't you, couldn't you just watch? Make yourself ready. The disciples were fast asleep. They had no idea what was going on around about them. They were ignorant to what was happening. In their immediate vicinity, in the wider field, they had, they had no idea because they were asleep. And Jesus asks them to be watchful, and he asks us to be watchful in the context of prayer. I am grateful for prayer emails for updates, for prayer lists, for things like that. I am, believe me, I am grateful for all of that stuff. Because it it gives me somewhere I can go to and just be reminded. But you know what? That's not enough. That doesn't actually offload my responsibility for being watchful in my prayer life. I should be paying attention to the world around about me so that I can work out what this world needs so I can pray for it. I should be speaking with the people in my church so that I can find out what's troubling them, what their difficulties are, so that I can be watchful and pray for them. We need to be aware of what's going on, and we need to be aware and watchful of what's going on in our own lives. Sometimes that's the one thing that we put the blind spots on, what's going on in our own lives, our temptations, our problems, our difficulties. We'll we'll focus on other things. I need to be aware and watchful so that I can be prepared to pray, to pray intelligently. And it might be, that as we're talking to people and somebody says what's, what's going on in their life or we see something in the news, we just make a little note of it, maybe on our phone or whatever, so that we have an ongoing prayer list. So that we're watchful and aware, not sleeping when we're supposed to be watching. And then we're asked to be thankful. It says we're told to pray with thanksgiving. This should be the easiest thing in the world. It should be. God has provided us with mercy that we do not deserve. He has said to us, if you are a child of mine, if you are in my family, if you have accepted Christ as your saviour, the judgment of this world is not your judgment. He has given us incredible mercy. And then we're promised this unbelievable relationship with God. That we have the spirit living inside us. That we have the son as our saviour. That we have the Father working in heaven, knowing our lives, working out for the best our lives. He has given us unbelievable promises for the future as well. The Bible tells us, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that I have prepared for those that love me. He's given us mercy, he gives us grace, he has given us promises for the future. We have every reason to be thankful. And in our prayers, we should present ourselves thankful to God. And that will actually invigorate our prayers. That will add fuel to our prayers when we remember what God has done for us. And Paul lives this out. 
He says in, in chapter 1, verse 3 of this book that we're looking at, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of God's people. He is full of thanksgiving. In Ephesians chapter 5, um, one of the, the, the chapters that links along with Colossians, verse 19, it says this. I didn't write it all down. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. Paul was a man who, in his prayers, when he was talking to God, he was thankful. And that should be us as well. We are called to devote ourselves to prayer with thanksgivings and to be watchful. In that quite famous Ephesians passage that loads of people like to go to, and we're presented with the, the armour of God. It's a great passage. As you read through it, it's so easy to see the imagery, to, to picture it, to see the, the breastplate and the sword and the girdle. It's so easy to see it, and it's, and it's great to go back into Ephesians 6 and to look at the armour of God and just to be reminded what God has given to us to help us in this spiritual battle that we are in. And it is a battle, and it's an ongoing battle. But as you go through it and you, you read what God has given to us for our defence and, and for the offensive as well, there's a verse right at the end of it that is quite easy to miss. We're defending ourselves against the, the devil and then it says this, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. After this list of the armour of God, we are told to pray because that's actually vital. A soldier can have the latest armory. He can have the best weapons. He can have, he can have the, the best Kevlar suits, like to bring it forward to modern day, or whatever. He can, he can have the best equipment. But if he stands on the battlefield alone, he's going to lose. And if he's not in regular com, uh, co- contact with, with HQ or Battle Command or the people who see the big picture the people who know where he needs to go, the people who, 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 who have the information that he needs, the per- people that he needs to make requests to. If that soldier is not in constant contact with his own headquarters, ultimately he's going to end, off, end up wandering off in the wrong direction, or he's going to find himself isolated on the battlefield, and he'll be on the losing side. And so as a Christian, as God prepares us with the armour of God for the spiritual battle, He then says, you need to be in constant contact. I see the big picture, the father says. I see it all. I know where you're supposed to be. I know where your life's supposed to travel. I know what you need. Be in contact with me. Because that's the only way that we can be successful in our part of the battle that God has placed us in. Prayer is essential. As as an act in our lives... And, and for our own personal struggles, for our, to overcome temptations, for our own um, personal evangelism, and, and so the list goes on, it is absolutely essential. And I don't have all of the answers about prayer. I really don't. But I know it's something that we are called and commanded to do. And so Paul makes this specific request. He says this, Pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Why is Paul asking for a door to be opened? Well, currently Paul is locked up in prison. So you could take this as a literal 
statement that I would really like this door to be opened. And so Paul writes to these, these Christians and he says, okay, guys, can you, can you campaign for me? Can you write letters for, uh, to governors and to the people in the authority? Can you march on the streets? Can you, have a, can you have a riot on my behalf? Can you get me out? That's not what he says at all. He doesn't say any of that. He says, pray for me. That this door might be opened. Because actually what Paul sees is that his imprisonment, his freedom... Where he is, where he's going to be, it's all in much mightier hands. It's in the hands of God. And what he wants are his fellow Christians to pray for him. I would imagine being locked up in a prison really narrows your ability to evangelize. And so Paul, he wants this door opened. Or it might be a specific door that he's got in mind. He might want to go to a specific place. But he calls his fellow Christians to pray for them. And isn't Paul's passion for the gospel inspiring? It's amazing. Paul is locked up in prison. The reason he's in prison is because he was preaching Christ. What does he want? He wants to get out of prison so that he can preach Christ. He's not bothered about the repercussions. He's not bothered. He's not, he's not, well, he maybe is scared. He maybe is fearful of what might happen. But he wants out of prison for the very reason that that ended up in him in prison in the first place. He was once the persecuting Saul, the one who was leading the drive against the church, killing and locking up Christians left, right and centre. He was respected amongst his peers. He was feared. He had great acclaim. You know, he was a man on a mission and with a station. He was an important guy. And when he encountered Christ the crucified and risen Lord. In a moment, he's broken. And he falls to his knees and he ends up saying, Lord, who are you? And he's just driven into this changed life where all he can think about is Christ. All he wants is to preach Christ. And anybody who does not know about Jesus as the one way of salvation for mankind, Paul wants to find him. That's humbling. I'm worried about speaking to people about Jesus at work. And I work in a manual college. And, and it's something that's completely irrational to me and, and I struggle with it. People who know that I'm a Christian, people who are okay with the fact that I'm a Christian, will embrace the fact that I'm a Christian. And I still worry about it. I don't have to worry about being locked up in prison. I'd have to fear persecution, and yet I find it such a difficult thing to just be very blunt and abrupt and, and just very clear with what I believe about my friends and my colleagues and work. And so there's a challenge. I see often in Paul a challenge just to be bolder and just to take those opportunities. And Paul calls this a mystery he says he wants to proclaim this mystery. And it's the same word that he uses in Ephesians. He says this, pray that words will be given to me that, so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. That's the parallel passage in Ephesians. Mysteries in the Bible were often, um, were usually unknown truths. Things that people weren't really sure about. Um, and, you know, the gospel, our gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it can actually be quite a complicated thing. There's depths to it. 
You can look into the gospel of Christ and you can find out all manner of things. Truths about regeneration, about reconciliation, about, well, a whole bunch of other doctrinal words. And it's something that is good to do, to look into these different aspects of our salvation and to get a deeper understanding of what Jesus has done for us and to worship because of it. It's maybe more than just God loves us, God loves us and Jesus died for us. But ultimately, Paul, his two main requests are this. Boldness and clarity. He wants to preach boldly and he wants to preach clearly. And that's something that, I've got to say, when I read this, I hadn't really thought a great deal about. Paul, the great apostle Paul, the man that, who wrote a third of our New Testament, the man that we look at and say, oh, he must have got it nailed as a preacher. He must have had it. He must have just walked out and preached and people got saved and it was just incredible. Actually, I believe that Paul knew that he could get it wrong. And, and he was worried about that. He might be worried that in the moment the fear would overtake him and, and he wouldn't actually say what he was supposed to say. That he might overcomplicate the message. That he might not be able to make it relate for the youths. That he might not be able to give the appropriate academic responses for the, the super intelligent religious classes. He knew that there was places that he could go wrong and so he prays. And he says, look, this isn't easy. And I can get this wrong. Pray for me so that I can boldly preach it and so that I can clearly preach it. And we need to be honest with ourselves because I can get it wrong. And I, I find it a challenge to evangelize. And I shouldn't. But we need to be honest with ourselves and maybe honest with people around about us and say, this is hard for me. And sometimes I, I don't feel as if I do have the right words to say, can you pray for me? So that when the opportunity comes along, I will boldly preach it and I will clearly preach it. And that takes a bit of preparation as well. But we'll come back to that shortly. And so, another challenge. If this week that opportunity opens itself up, if you're at work and somebody asks about your weekend and you get into a conversation about church or whatever it is, and you think, maybe there's an opportunity here, go for it. Go for it. Just take those opportunities and tell about Jesus. And, and be bold. And be as clear as you can. And take those opportunities. And so Paul, wanting to, uh, these Christians to pray for him, no, and also knowing that, that they are going to have their own opportunities, gives a little bit of what I would think is incredibly helpful advice as well when these opportunities to preach the gospel comes up. Imagine that you've just taken that bold step. You got into conversation with a colleague at work. You've told him that Jesus loves him. Um, that through him and him alone, salvation can be found and forgiveness from sins can be, can be um, achieved. And the conversation ensues and, and you very clearly tell about Jesus. And your colleague says, they're going to think seriously about it. And then they leave. Five minutes later, that same colleague hears you gossiping about somebody else at the workplace to another colleague. What does that do? What does that do to the, the gospel that you preach? What does that do to the name of Christ? Or similar situation, you've just told them about Jesus. Five minutes later, they walk into the room where you are and you're 
in the middle of having a proper rant at somebody, shouting your head off because they got a little mistake wrong and you completely overreacted. And you're not acting very graciously at all with somebody and you're really having a go at someone and they've just walked in. What does that do to the gospel? What does that do to the name, the glorious name of Jesus Christ? Take the same situation. You've just spoken about Jesus and that colleague walks in and what they hear this time is you refusing to gossip or to be, you're being very gracious to a colleague who's made a mistake or you're refusing to laugh at a crude joke or a sexist joke and so the list obviously goes on. What does that do to the gospel? Paul says this, be wise. Why? So that in your proclamation of Jesus there is nothing to get in the way. There is nothing to undermine the gospel. And there's lots of reasons why we might act unwisely, youthful exuberance, arrogance on our part, keeping quiet when maybe we should have said something, speaking too much and being absolutely determined to get a point across to the point that we frustrate everybody in the room. We all know those people. There's loads of ways that we can be unwise in our actions and our words. Sometimes we look at our family and we have the blinders on with our family and we don't see the mistakes that our own family are making because we just don't want to see that. But conversely, sometimes we treat our own family worse than we treat everybody else. And that's not fair. And wisdom is quite a hard thing to do. And I don't hold to the idea that as you get older, you'll just get wiser. I, I don't believe that. I know very wise young people. And I know very foolish older people. And I don't hold to the belief that wisdom will just come with age. But what it does say in James chapter 1 is if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. It's good for us to know our own pitfalls, our own weaknesses, our own problems, so that we can ask God for wisdom, so that we can really try and put them right. So that ultimately, we are not a stumbling block for the gospel and for the Spirit of God. And he says this, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Now we know that in the Bible, salt was a preservative. And that was generally what it was referred to as. It was for its preservative capabilities. And that's exactly what gracious words do. When we act graciously with somebody, when we talk kindly with, with somebody, we preserve the gospel, not ruining it. And Jesus is an incredible example of this. Jesus spoke honestly and frankly about sin. He called religious leaders hypocrites. He told them they were whitewashed sepulchres, tombs full of death when they looked nice on the outside. He held people to account. There's no doubt about that. He was frank and he was honest and he hated sin and he made no qualms about that. But at the same time, in Luke chapter 4, it says, right at the beginning of his public ministry, just as he was stepping out and he, he was speaking in, in a, um, to a group of people and they, they all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words. And the, lip, and the words that came from his lips, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus finds himself in a position later where a woman caught as an adulteress is brought to him for condemnation and Jesus, through the dialogue, comes to the end of it and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How gracious. He was the friend of publicans and sinners. He was the person who acted so graciously with all people. 
And I promise this, that there is nobody who is going to find themselves in hell because they met Jesus and his actions and his words didn't tie up. It's never going to happen. Nobody will find themselves in that position because Jesus was full of gracious words. And I think that's maybe what Paul had in mind as he, as he said to them, speak words which are full of grace. I wonder if will be the same. I wonder if anybody will find himself in hell one day, and that's a sobering thought, because our words and our actions didn't actually marry up. They didn't match. And our words and our lack of grace got in the way of the gospel. And so we come to the final clause in our verses so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let me pose two questions. Two questions that I believe that we should be able to answer, and I'm not going to give you the answer, because my answer will be different from your answer. My experience, my salvation, like the way I came to know Christ, etc., etc., will be different from yours. And so my answer to these two questions will be different from yours. But I think that we should all be able to answer this. And I heard one of these questions asked at the FX night away, and it, it made me happy. Why do you believe that Jesus is the way to heaven? Do you have an answer for that question? Could you answer that question if somebody said to you, why do you believe that Jesus is the way to heaven? Why do you believe, or why do you think that I should believe it? Do you have an answer for that question? Why do you believe that Jesus is the way to heaven? Why do you think I should believe it? If somebody asked those questions to you, would you be prepared? Would you have some kind of answer? Would you just be thinking on your feet? Would you end up that night thinking, oh, I, I, I should have given this kind of answer. Because actually, we are asked to be prepared. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says this, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have, for the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect. Be prepared. Now, I don't think that this means that you need to be able to give an answer for how Darwin's theory of macroevolution can fit into the Bible. I don't think this necessarily means that you need to be able to explain why the second law of thermodynamics fits in with the Bible. I don't think that you necessarily should be able to explain different social constructs in a modern-day geographical and political environments based on a biblical model. I don't think you should necessarily be able to do that. I can't. But I do believe that we should be able to tell people why we believe in Jesus and why we think they should believe in Jesus. We should be prepared to give the reason for the hope that we have. And may I challenge you, if you can't answer those questions, maybe you could dedicate a little bit of time to coming up with some I don't mean script an answer that you carry around in your back pocket all the time. That's not what I mean. But you should have a clarity in your own mind as to how you would answer questions like that. There are other questions as well, of course. Maybe there's someone who sits here who isn't a Christian, who doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, the only way to have our sins forgiven, is God's only way of salvation. Maybe that's you. And in that situation, maybe the question that you need to be able to give a clear answer for is, why do you not believe it? 
Because just saying, I don't want to talk about it, or I don't want to think about it, isn't good enough. Because just saying that um, I don't like the consequences of that decision, that's not good enough. If you're not a Christian, you should be able to explain why not. Because that's as important as being, me being able to explain why I am. Or maybe you're sitting here as somebody who, you, who, who is a Christian. You have taken that step. You have asked God to forgive their sins at some point. But you're sitting here not in a real relationship with God. Pretty far from him, really. Quite distant. He's kind of... He's way down the list of priorities. You don't really think about him on a day-to-day basis. You're not, you don't really... You're, like, you're a Christian, but you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a practicing Christian. Maybe you should be able to answer the question, what's the matter with that? Why is what you believe you are and your lifestyle not, not matching up? How can you fix that? Why should you fix that? There are all of these questions that it's good for us to be able to answer. And if we can't answer them, then we need to put that right. We need to sort that issue out in our lives. And so, as you come to the end of our passage um, this morning, a few challenges. Paul says to us, be prayerful. Be a prayerful people. Whether it's you individually, or whether it's us as a church, and we should be a prayerful church, people who bring our problems out, and as a church, pray for the area around about us. We should be a prayerful church, and we should be prayerful individuals. And we should be prepared. We should be prepared to preach and to tell people about Jesus and to live a life and to have gracious words and we should be prepared because we're asked to be. And we should be proclaimers of Jesus Christ because we're asked, no, we're commanded to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Some people say, and I understand and I the sentiments are nice. That you should preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And I get the idea of that, that your life should speak out Christ itself. But I actually disagree with it. We should preach the gospel. We should use our words and our life. And when they match up, and when we're prepared, and we're praying for people, and we're preaching about Jesus Christ and proclaiming the great news of salvation... I believe that God will save. I really do. And so from Colossians, maybe just be challenged to be these three things. Prayerful, prepared, and proclaimers. Let's pray. Father, I thank you um, for the challenges that you put in your word for us. Help us to be prayerful people. Help us to be moved in our spirits so that we dedicate ourselves to praying. Help us to be both prepared and willing to boldly and clearly preach the gospel of Christ. Father, you give us opportunities. Help us not waste them. But for your glory, for your kingdom, for your namesake, may we speak boldly about Jesus Christ. Father, challenge us this morning and keep us safe. Protect us. Bless us in all that we're doing this week. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.